You have to forgive us. We're having some microphone issues. So, uh, hey, I may grab a handheld mic and march around the stage yelling into it like a TV preacher. You just, you never know. Probably not, but, you know. <clears throat> I have to admit that I was wrong. I don't like being wrong, but I really hate admitting that I was wrong. It gives my wife all kinds of wrong ideas about the frequency of that happening. But last week, I was talking about Valentine's Day, and I mistakenly mentioned that it is a holiday that commemorates nothing. I used to claim that it was made up by greeting card companies and florists. Well, the truth is that is not an accurate description of Valentine's Day. It does, in fact, commemorate the beheading of St. Valentine, the, the patron saint of lovers, epilepsy, and beekeepers. So, you can actually see his skull on display at the Basilica of Santa Maria in Cosmaden, which is in Rome, for those of you really serious lovers. But next time you think of Valentine's Day, think of the beheading of St. Valentine, and then, you know, hugs and kisses to everyone. <laughs> I will say it was encouraging to me. I didn't receive any phone calls from angry wives or distraught husbands this week, which means either you guys did Valentine's Day right, or you all called your moms instead of me to voice your disappointment, which I'm all for that, because... <laughs> Day disappointments, my gift giving on Valentine's Day. I've been told by others is less than romantic. But, so, I have to confess that. I was wrong. It does commemorate something. So you can remember that next year. When you're looking for a card, that's the image you should be thinking of. So, let's get to why we're here today. We've been through a lot together. For two and a half chapters of Romans, we've been looking at the sad story of the ruin of the human race. And now, today, we're going to reach a new point in Paul's letter. Instead of continuing to review the grim story of sin and of God's wrath, we now turn to the wonderful news of God's great grace. And that grace to sinners comes to us through Jesus Christ. So, how are you doing? We began this dive into depravity on October the 9th of last year. And you've heard it every week. We did have a few exceptions. We did a, a Christmas sermon, and then Jeremy and David each took a week. But by my count, you've endured 16 weeks 16 sermons covering how bad mankind is in the sight of God, and yet you're still here. So where do we go from here? Questions, anyone? Asks, what may be the best question man has ever asked? In chapter 9 of Job, and I think it's verse 2, he says, but how can a man be right before God? 
And then he goes on the rest of that chapter to describe this God in very awesome language that makes this question even more significant. You know, when John the Baptist was preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, his fearful warnings about God's judgment. It says in Luke chapter 3, verse 10, that the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Even at Pentecost, when Peter preached the great sermon there at Pentecost, the book of Acts records this as the crowd's response in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. It says, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So I think that's a reasonable question after the first two and a half chapters of Romans, after 16 messages depicting the absolute total destruction of the human race wrought by sin and rebellion. What shall we do? Well, Scripture makes it clear that there is a way, indeed, back to God. But I hope through these last few weeks you've learned that it is Scripture makes it clear that it's going to have to take someone else. So this morning, we're going to begin to answer that question, what shall we do? As Paul moves on to what you could say is the actual good news of the gospel. So we've covered the bad news a lot. So now we're going to move to what is the good news of the gospel. You know, as I was thinking this week, my job as a pastor has taught me the importance of words. Now, some people just think words are just the stuff that fill up our conversations. But when I got to thinking about it, they are the product of my work. After a week of preparation, the product that I produce is words. This week, 20 pages of words. So I've learned that the selection of the words that I present to you may be the most important part of my preparation. I mean, I can study the text, the meaning, understand it fully. But if I can't find the words to describe and explain it, then I don't think I've been successful in my job as someone who is to bring the exposition of Scripture you know, when we talk about words to properly understand the Bible, surely there are words that we must understand the meaning of. Very important words like faith or justification or grace. There's any number of them in your Bible that you really ought to know what they mean because they come up often and their meaning is important. I think it would be difficult to understand the story of the Bible without knowing what these, and I think it's all we could call less important words. John three sixteen comes to mind. Remember what it says: "For God so loved the world." What does the word "so" mean? Why is it in there? Why didn't God just say, "You know, God loved the world and gave His Son"? Why is the word "so"? You would think that that indicates that there's a certain way in, what, in which God loved the world. 
But what is that way? Because the answer to that question could reflect on your understanding of the gospel and your theology. Does it mean that God loved the world equally and universally so that everyone is saved? Does it mean that he loved the world perfectly, selflessly, and in a holy way? So to ask that question and to answer it means that we have to go deeper into the meaning of what is probably the most popular verse in the Bible. We're not going to do that this morning. Just wanted to throw that out there as an example. You can do that this week in your quiet time. But here in our text today, we do come to two of these words at the beginning of Romans 3.21 that are going to sort of form our sermon today. So let's look at the verse first. Chapter 3. Of Romans, verse 21 says this But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So, surely you can see in that the two words. But those are tremendous words. When you come off of the first two and a half chapters of Romans, I'm very happy to see these words. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls them the great turning point in God's dealings with the human race and a turning point in the letter. You know, if we had not spent months studying the first two and a half chapters of this book and understanding the real condition of man in the sight of God, I don't think we'd be in a position to fully appreciate what is to come. The change that these words introduce would not seem to be much of a change at all. With no understanding of the past, we can never appreciate the present. And so we have to understand the first part of this book before we get to where we are now. We've studied that. For 16 weeks. But now we move on. So these two words become for us a source of great joy, a song of triumph or victory. So where do we begin? The obvious place for me is with the word now. And the reason that is obvious to me is it indicates that there's a change in time or in history. Before, something existed, but now that has changed. The contrast between then and now is And if you study his writings, you will see that, which we're going to do a little bit of that this morning. And I think the reason is plain. The change between a sad state of affairs... And a glorious present state is one that Paul himself experienced. I mean, you remember the story, don't you? It occurred on the Damascus Road. Before that event, Paul had been an enemy of Christ. He was an enemy of Christ's followers. He was trying to get rid of them. 
And he thought he was doing right, which is what most fanatics believe. But it was on that road to Damascus that Jesus appeared to Paul, revealed himself to him as the Son of God, the one Paul was persecuting. And in that moment, Scripture says, the scales fell from Paul's eyes. The truth of heaven broke through his darkened heart and shone a new light there. He turned from his old life of pride and persecution to a life of serving Christ and the gospel. He was like the blind man in the book of John that was healed by Jesus. Paul could now say, one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I can see. When Paul writes to the Philippians, he explains this In Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but which is one of our words today, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Can you see the drastic nature of the change there? Everything that I had once taken pride in, I'm now happy to lose for the sake of Christ. They are rubbish compared to what I have gained in Jesus Christ. What existed before is now completely changed. Meeting Jesus on the way to Damascus in the midst of his campaign to arrest the followers of Jesus made all the difference. Before something existed, but now that has changed. But when we read here in Romans today and consider the truth that we're going to talk about in the context of the whole letter, I think we can see that Paul is not just speaking of himself and the experience that he went through, but he's speaking of something that has happened to benefit the entire human race. It is something that God has done to provide salvation for the race. And I mean, the truth is, if God had not done this, our present and future condition would be very bleak. Our condition would be what we've already read in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 2, 20. 320. We would be under wrath. We would be in spiritual and moral decline. There would be no possibility of us saving ourselves by our own righteousness. We would be, as Paul said in Ephesians, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, things are different. There is hope. 
And there is hope because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And that is the good news of the gospel. The incarnation, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus... other passages, most of them in the book of Romans, but not all of them, to discover what exactly has changed. When he says, but now, what is new that used to not be? What has changed? So this today is not going to be a normal word by word or phrase by phrase analysis of the verse. We'll get back to that in in the weeks to come. So today, let's look at what change we're talking about. By using the word now, Paul is implying that something used to be, but now it's different. So let's look at those. The text suggests changes in these areas. The first one is from wrath to righteousness. When Paul says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, I think it's clear that he's contrasting what is happening now with what he said back in chapter 1, verse 18. In that passage, he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Before, the wrath of God was being revealed against us. But now, the righteousness of God is made known. So if we don't understand that apart from Jesus Christ, we are under his wrath and destined for judgment, I don't think we can really appreciate the greatness of what God has done for us in providing salvation through Christ's atonement. Which is why, you know, people in our day, it's kind of funny, they generally think they're on pretty good terms with God. And if they're not, it's just because God is a little off his game, but he'll come back around and like me later. Surely by now, after reading through Romans, you know that that is not the case at all. On the contrary, the case is what Paul has presented to us in the first chapter of the book. We've rejected God. We have suppressed the truth about him, even though he revealed himself to us. And he is already in the process of revealing his wrath upon mankind. He's given us up to the consequences of our sin. In Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, we've read this list the past few weeks. I'm not going to read it again. Paul describes the end of this abandonment, what the culture will look like. There's every kind of wickedness and evil and greed and depravity you can imagine. And this is what happened when God displays his wrath by abandoning us to our own evil desires and our own plans. How are we to escape that? Well, in ourselves, we can't. But now, says Paul, In place of wrath, the righteousness of God has been manifested. This is the only single way 
of salvation. Your righteousness will never be enough. But when we're covered by the righteousness of Christ, God accepts us. That's the only way, but thank God there is a single way. So the first area of change is from wrath to righteousness. What else can we find? And we see this as we continue on in chapter 3. The last part of verse 22 and following says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're very familiar with that passage. Verse 24 says, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we don't stop with the fact that we all sin, we're all guilty. We move on from that to the fact that we can be justified by his grace now. It's not only here that we see this truth, and these verses really aren't even the strongest case for it. I would direct you to Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 9 of chapter 5 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Now just like most people don't understand that they're already under God's wrath, most people don't believe they're under God's condemnation either. I mean, they don't see it because the sentence that's hanging over them has not been fully executed upon them. They're alive and well, successful. They expect to remain so. However, Scripture is clear that we're still, as a race, under the condemnation of God apart from Christ. Jesus taught this in John chapter 3, verse 17. So right after verse 16, which we all know, he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. So verse 18 Already under his wrath. And in John 3, which we just read, they are already under his condemnation. But now, because of Christ's work, there can be justification rather than condemnation. Romans 3:24 says that this justification is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what else can we learn? What other areas have changed? That's a couple of them. The next one I think we can look at is the change from bondage to freedom. From bondage to freedom. Sin doesn't just bring us under God's wrath and under God's condemnation, which we've already talked about, but it enslaves us. So we can't live truly godly lives. But things can be different. In Romans 7 Paul uses these same two important words again. 
Romans 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now I can just, I can hear the wheels in your brains turning right now because that verse sounds really odd. It almost sounds like antinomianism. There are no constraints of the law anymore. This is a very important matter, and we'll look at it in great detail when we get to it. So you'll just have to come every week between now and and then, about two years probably. (laughs) We'll get to that chapter, and we'll completely clarify all your questions. But the chief point is that although... When we're apart from Christ, we're under the law, but we're unable to keep it because of sin in our life. But when we are united to Christ, the Holy Spirit delivers us from the bondage of sin. Chapter 6, again, using the same words, chapter 6, verse 22, but now... You've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. No longer enslaved by sin, it says that you've been set free from sin. So we have a change from condemnation to justification. So let's move on. The final one would be the change from exclusion to participation. Now, this is one that we as Gentiles ought to be extremely happy about. Now, we're going to briefly leave the book of Romans because I think Paul expresses it best when he's writing to the Ephesians. In chapter 2, verse 13, we see these same words again. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, Paul never forgot that even though Jews need Jesus Christ just like Gentiles do, they did nevertheless possess in his day great spiritual advantages that non-Jews didn't possess. In Romans chapter 9, verse 4, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Gentiles were cut off from those things. Nevertheless, those who were excluded from this earthly citizenship had now come together with believing Jews into a new relationship. Paul says it this way later in the same chapter of Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Because of the work of Christ. So far this morning, I've been claiming that the words but now indicate that something new has come into the world. Something new in terms of a believer's relationship to God. I think, though, I need to say that that's true in one sense. Something new actually happened in history, the work of Christ. But I think there's another sense in which this is not new at all. 
but rather it is an expression of the same plan through which God has been saving people since the beginning of the world. It's new in a historical sense, but as the way of salvation, it has always existed this way in the mind of God. Here's how Paul describes it rather explicitly in in the book of 2 Timothy. We'll start with verse 9. Actually, back in verse 8, it says, Don't be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord. So we're talking about our Lord here when he says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purposes and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So his purpose of salvation, the grace of salvation, were given to us in Christ before the ages began. Verse 10, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So you see that the plan existed before the ages began, but it became visible, became manifested to us in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul makes this same point in chapter 3, verse 21, our text today, when he says that this righteousness of God is something that the law and the prophets bear witness to. It didn't just happen, it's been prophesied. When he says the law and the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament. Answer that question. We think back to the earliest part of the Old Testament where God came to Adam and Eve after their rebellion in the garden, after they ate from the forbidden tree. And God pronounced a judgment on them and he cursed the serpent and he punished Adam and Eve for yielding to the temptation of the serpent. But then, in the middle of these stern words, God said this, speaking to the serpent, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ who would be wounded by Satan. Although Satan would strike his heel, Christ would crush Satan's head, destroying him and his work forever. Now it's somewhat Controversial, I studied this this week, and not everyone agrees, but it seems to me that Adam and Eve believed this prophecy and were saved. They believed in the future. Their faith looked forward, where our faith looks backward to the same event. So we move on in Genesis to Abraham. From the beginning, God told Abraham things like, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. But as the story unfolds, we see that God adds more to that very first cryptic blessing, cryptic revelation, until finally we have the magnificent account of Abraham being called to And we learn that it wasn't going to be through Abraham that everyone would be blessed, but through his offspring. His son was spared by the ram. 
Genesis 22:18 says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Paul would later t- teach us in Galatians that that word for offspring is singular. It doesn't mean that all of his offspring would be a blessing to the world, but there would be one special offspring. One special descendant who would redeem the race by dying for it. So that near sacrifice of Isaac was a picture of Jesus coming to die in our place. On that same mountain. So you can look at the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. It points forward to Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He fulfilled the meaning of those sacrifices. You can look at the furnishings of the temple and of the tabernacle. All of those and the rites associated with them pointed to Jesus. We have references to him in the Psalms. Psalm 1610 prophesies about the Lord's resurrection. It says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption. Peter quoted this at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And Paul quoted it before. He quoted this on the cross where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the first lines of Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 23 portrays Jesus as the good shepherd. Jesus himself taught this in John chapter 10. Psalm 24 describes the ascension of Jesus. But what about the prophets? Well, there, as you know, many specific references to Jesus in the prophetic books. And there are really too many for us to list. But we can't overlook this one. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These prophecies about Jesus I think the important thing for us to know this morning is not whether you understand all of these Old Testament prophecies, but whether the change we've talked about this morning applies to you. You may not know much theology. Those words that were on the screen earlier might be confusing to you. Words like justification or propitiation, redemption. Those may only be vague generalities to you. But you know what your past life has been. You remember your past sins. You're aware of your failures. Is it truly just a former or a past state for you? Or are you still like that? 
Can you say that was true of me once, but now I'm different? Can you say you were like the person in the first two and a half chapters of Romans? But that was before. Now Christ has come. He saved me. And I'm an entirely new creature because of that. We talked about Martin Lloyd-Jones earlier. He suggests that this is one way by, you, by which you can test whether you're a true Christian. And by which you can reassure and strengthen yourself if you are. Here's his quote. When the devil attacks you and suggests still in your heart or because of what you're still doing or because of something you once did, when he comes and thus accuses you, what do you say to him? Do you agree with him? Or do you say to him, yes, that was true, but now? Do you hold up these words against him? Or when perhaps you feel condemned as you read the scripture, as you read the law in the Old Testament, as you read the Sermon on the Mount, and as you feel that you are undone, do you remain lying on the ground in hopelessness? Or do you lift up your head and say, but now? This is the essence of the Christian position. This is how faith answers the accusations of the law, the accusations of conscience, and everything else that would condemn and depress us. These are indeed very wonderful words, and it is most important that we should lay hold of them and realize their tremendous importance and real significance. I'm going to ask our musicians to return to the stage as we close this morning. So can you say those words? And you say, yes, those things are true of me back in the day, but now I'm different. And you say those. You can if you've put your trust in Jesus and his death on your behalf. Can you say, once I was blind, but now I see? Can you say, once I was lost, but now I'm found? Once I was subject to the just wrath of God, first two and a half chapters of Romans, but now I've been saved by Jesus, having received the gift of God's righteousness through faith in him. Let's pray together.